Greetings and welcome. My name is James White. We have begun a study of the relationship of Islam and Christianity, recognizing that Islam arose over 600 years after the birth of Christ. We need to understand the relationship that exists, especially in light of the fact that Muhammad in the Quran makes the argument for his own prophethood that he stands in a long line of prophets and apostles. So much so that from the Islamic perspective, Abraham, Moses, Jesus were all Muslims. They dressed as Muslims. They prayed as Muslims. And so there has to be a consistency in their teaching and their message. Did that consistency exist? And when the Quran deals with specific Christian beliefs that it is denying, such as the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, dealing with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, does it do so accurately? Can the claims of the Quran withstand examination from a historical perspective? And it, does that consistency that is claimed to exist between Jesus and Muhammad, does it actually exist when we look very carefully at the words themselves, at the claims themselves, the teachings as well? We began by looking at Surah 112, Ali Klaas, and we saw that in the Quran itself, as Islam defines itself, and we're allowing Islam to this. We're not, we're not, we didn't come up with Surah 112. Uh, this is something that Muhammad gave. And so as we've examined Surah 112, we've seen that one of the four ayahs refers to a denial of the Christian faith. It says that there is none, that God is not begotten, nor does he beget. But this is not the only place in the Quran where the issue of the deity of Christ, Christ as the Son of God comes up. We need to understand, if you are a Christian listening to this presentation, especially if you're a Christian who desires to share your faith with the Muslim people, you need to understand the barrier that exists when we start speaking about who Jesus Christ is. Because in Islamic faith, what the Muslim hears us inviting them to do is to commit the terrible sin of shirk. Shirk is the sin of idolatry. It is associating others with Allah. And from the Islamic perspective, if one dies in shirk, one dies without forgiveness. Those who commit shirk, the mushrik, these are individuals who will experience the wrath of Allah. They will go into the everlasting fire. And so they have been taught that the Christian idea of the Trinity, the Christian idea of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Savior, is to be associating someone else with Allah. But remember, from the Christian perspective, we are not Unitarians. We are not associating anyone with Allah. Jesus is just as much God as the Father is God and has eternally been so. We're not talking about two different gods. There is no association going on here at all, but that is what Muslim people have been taught about the Christian faith. And of course, the question that immediately comes up is, is that what Muhammad believed? Did Muhammad have an accurate knowledge of what Christians believed? And if he did not, what does that mean in regards to the Quran if the Quran misrepresents the Christian doctrine of the Trinity?
For surely, no matter what else anyone would say, Allah knows what the doctrine of the Trinity is, and he knows that with infallible certainty. And so we've been looking at what the actual writings of the Quran say, allowing it to speak in its own language. I am certainly trying to apply the exact same standards of exegesis and interpretation to the Quran that I do to the Bible. I do not have one standard for the Quran and a different standard for the Bible. Instead, I desire to be very accurate and consistent and to honor truth in that way. So, having looked at Surah 112, now let's take a look at what we have in Surah 31. Surah 31. Here we have part of the definition of what shirk is, the idea of association, associating any created thing with the uncreated God. Remember, if you're a Muslim listening to this, we do not believe we are doing that because Jesus is not created in his eternal deity. He takes on human flesh at a point in time, yes. We confess that the God who created humanity is powerful enough to enter into that which he created. And upon what basis can anyone say he lacks that power? You may say that he would never do so. But I say to you, the incarnation is the greatest sign of God's love for his people. But here is the definition provided, for example, in Surah 31, Ayah 13. O my dear son, ascribe no partners unto Allah. Lo, to ascribe partners unto him is a tremendous wrong. To ascribe partners, remember, Muhammad is speaking from his background. When he first began his ministry in the proclamation, there's only one true God, Allah. He is in Mecca, and Mecca at that time is filled with idolatry. The Kaaba has all sorts of idols in it at that time, remember? And so he recognizes, he first preaches out against the idolatry that he sees in his area. It is only later that he then seeks to interact with the Christian faith. Did he encounter Christians who could accurately explain to him that we are monotheists, that we are not polytheists, that we do not uh, believe in association of anyone with Allah uh, the way that these texts describe it? And certainly we see the same kind of definition in Surah 6.1, Praise be to Allah, who created the heavens and the earth and made the darkness and the light. Yet those who reject faith, the kafir, hold others as equal with their guardian Lord. Notice it says they hold others as equal with their guardian Lord. They're the ones who reject faith. Here again, the concept of shirk being clearly expressed to us in the pages of the Quran. But are these applicable to the Christian belief? That is the question that we have to examine. Now, before turning to Surah 4, 47 through 48, I would like to explain something to the non-Muslims in the audience because, and indeed, in fact, it may be something that the Muslims in the audience need to be reminded of as well because it, it really impacts our ability to understand the Quran. When one today picks up the Quran and begins to read it, they very quickly discover that there are some difficulties in following a context. The reason for this is the way in which the Quran is organized. 
many non-Muslims do not understand the fact that the Quran is not written in any fashion in chronological order. Instead, when you pick up the Quran, you will open to Fatiha, the opening, the first surah, and then beginning with the second surah, Al-Baqarah, you have an organization based primarily, not exactly, but primarily upon the size or the length of the surahs. There are 114 surahs in the current uh, edition of the Quran. I say that because there are some questions about exactly how many there should have been. There was disagreement amongst some of the early companions of the prophet regarding certain surahs. But that issue aside, it's an important issue to look at, but not within our context right now. That issue aside, there are 114 surahs, which are roughly equivalent to our chapters of the Bible. Now, the first uh, of the longest, the second surah, is very, very long. And of course, the 110th, 111th are very, very short, just a short number of ayahs. The problem with organizing the material in the Quran this way is that if you just pick the book up and start reading, you're going to be jumping back and forth, back and forth between major periods of Muhammad's life. You see, when he first begins to teach, he is a persecuted religious minority in Mecca. Yes, he is part of the Quraysh tribe, and so he has, he has some uh, protection from his family at that point in time. But pretty soon, even they have backed away from him, and he is a persecuted minority in Mecca. And it is in the Meccan surahs that we find the discussions of how, for example, there should be no compulsion in religion. We find in those surahs the discussions about how we should have the freedom to worship God. Why? Because, well, <laughs> Muhammad is a persecuted minority. And when you're in the minority, you're going to talk about how no one should force you to go with the majority viewpoint and things like that. And so the Meccan surahs, the ones that come while he is living in Mecca, are of a very different nature than the Medinan surahs. For after Muhammad goes to Medina, after he go, undergoes what's called the Hijrah, and he goes to Medina, or at the time it's called Yuthrib, but then it became Medina, uh, now once he consolidates his control over Medina and it becomes a Muslim state, a Muslim city, all of a sudden the nature of the Medinan surahs changes. And one of the reasons that people can take the Quran and they can go, oh, see, here it says there should be no violence. Here it says there should be no compulsion. And then someone else can come along with the same book and say, ah, but here it says you are to pursue the unbelievers and you are to cause them to submit and to, uh, to pay the jizya. And you're reading the same book. And the reason is there are different periods, even in the short 22 years, of period of when, when Muhammad is receiving the Quran, there are different periods within that, and they sound very differently when you read them. The problem is they're all mixed up in the Quran, since the Quran lays these out by length. And so you can be reading along in a Meccan surah, and you get to the next surah, and it's Medinan, and it sounds very different. Then it goes back to Meccan, then to Medinan, and you'll have a few Medinan in a row, then a few Meccan in a row. And if you don't know what the order of the writing was, it is very difficult for any modern reader to really find out what is being said and to follow the development of Muhammad's thought over time.
In the same way, you can tell there are certain surahs where Muhammad says very positive things about Christians, about the people of the book. But then later on, you have less positive things being said. And, and when we go back in the history, we discover that sometimes there have been some encounters and that have changed the prophet's perspective in that particular point of time. So keep that in mind as you attempt to read this material in the Quran yourself. But going back to again recognizing that the Quran in, in its own words directly contradicts Christian teaching, let's look at Surah 4, 47 through 48. Surah 4, 47 through 48. O ye people of the book, Again, this would be normally people, the book is addressed to Jews and Christians. Sometimes it could be more specific in regards to just Christians or just Jews. But, O ye people of the book, believe in what we have now revealed, confirming what was already with you. This would refer specifically to the Quran and the ministry of Muhammad. Before we change the face and fame of some of you beyond all recognition and turn them hindwards or curse them as we curse the Sabbath breakers. For the decision of Allah must be carried out. Allah forgiveth not that partners should be set up with him, but he forgiveth anything else to whom he pleaseth. To set up partners with Allah is to devise a sin most heinous indeed. Please note, to set up partners, to commit the sin of shirk, Allah does not forgive this. He does not forgive the sin of shirk if you die in the state as a mushrik, one who has committed and is committing the sin of shirk. In that same surah, surah 4, ayahs 171 and 172, we read, O people of the book, commit no excesses in your religion. Note that phrase. It is clear that the writer is seeing what he's about to say what he's about to condemn as an excess, as something that's going beyond what was originally given. O people of the book, commit no excesses in your religion, nor say of Allah aught but truth. Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than a razul, an apostle of Allah, and his word which he bestowed on Mary, and a spirit proceeding from him. So believe in Allah and his apostles. So now you have a direct statement from the Quran referring to an excess in religion on the part of Christians. And what is this excess in religion? Evidently, it is the idea of saying that Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was something more than merely a razul, one who was sent by God, an apostle of Allah. What is the nature of this Excess being committed by the people of the book? Well, we're not told specifically here, but we are told that he is merely the son of Mary. He is an apostle. He is a human being like you and like I. It continues on to say, say not Trinity. Now, this is the translation of the Quran that I'm using. Literally, as those of you who read Arabic know, it literally says three. Say not three. Desist. It will be better for you, for Allah is one Allah. Glory be to him, for exalted is he above having a son. To him belong all things in the heavens and on earth, 
and enough is a law as a disposer of affairs. Christ disdaineth not to serve and worship a law, nor do the angels, those nearest to a law, those who disdain his worship and are arrogant, he will gather them all together under himself to answer. Now here we enter into the specific elements of the Quran that deny the Christian faith, just as we saw in Surah 112. And we need to understand specifically what is found here. We have say not Trinity, say not three. Now, what is Muhammad attempting to say? What is the Quran seeking to say? Is this not an, an attempt anyway to deny the doctrine of the Trinity? Some would say that it is not. Some would actually opt for the idea that, that uh, Muhammad had encountered a very odd, uh, almost unknown to history group of non-Christians, Christian heretics, uh, who had a completely different, deficient view of the Trinity, and that's all that the Quran is referring to. I don't think there's hardly any evidence of that. I think it is fairly clear that here the Quran seeks to deny the doctrine of the Trinity. For notice what it says. Say not three, desist, it will be better for you, for Allah is one Allah. Now, Clearly, this is trying to say that to say three is to say that there are three Allahs, that there are three gods. But that's exactly what Christians don't do. We say there is one God. We just do not add to that the Unitarian assertion that the being of God must be shared by only one person. The Bible reveals otherwise. And then notice it says... Glory be to Allah, for exalted is he above having a son. The only way I can understand this language is that the writer believes that the Trinity involves Allah having a child, just as human beings have a child. But that would be a misunderstanding of the Trinity because clearly long before 632, the end of Muhammad's ministry. Long before the beginning of the 7th century, Christians had made it very clear that they believe that the sonship of Christ is eternal. It did not start at a point in time. That Jesus, as a divine being, has eternally existed. And that divine person has eternally borne the relationship of son to the father. There was not a time when that was not true. So what's being communicated here? How can it be said he exalted as he above having a son? This would seem to be a misunderstanding of what Christians believe. Now, it's understandable on a human level. There are many Christians who cannot give you a really decent definition of the doctrine of the Trinity, even to this day. So it is understandable how Muhammad, as a human, could have a misunderstanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. But my non-Muslim friends in the audience need to understand that's not what Muslims believe the Quran is. They don't believe that it is the words of Muhammad. They do not believe that the Ignorance of Muhammad could have any impact upon the text of the Quran because the Quran is sent down. In fact, my Arabic-speaking friends will confirm that the Arabic word for that's normally translated revealed literally means to send down. 
And you see, from the Islamic perspective, God has sent the Quran down. It exists in perfection in heaven, and he has simply sent it down through Muhammad. Muhammad. This is not a reflection of Muhammad's understanding, his level of knowledge, or anything else. That, we recognize, is the Islamic viewpoint. I recognize that. However, we have to test that claim. Because this text is denying what had already been revealed through Jesus Christ and his apostles. And... God had testified to the truthfulness of that by raising Jesus from the dead. And so if someone comes along 600 years later and says, nope, that's all wrong, shouldn't we test those claims? Even if he says, well, and that's not my opinion, that's just, that's just God revealing these things through me. We still have to have the ability to test these claims. And so we have here, in the Quran itself, a denial of the Trinity, but not an accurate denial. And notice, this is supposed to be an apologetic argument, an argument in defense of the Islamic viewpoint. Hi. Why? Because what it says, Christ disdaineth not to serve and worship Allah. From the writer's viewpoint, obviously, this is an argument against the deity of Christ, because clearly God can't worship God. We need to recognize that from the Islamic perspective, the idea of the incarnation is by definition excluded. By definition, God cannot enter into his own creation. There can be no such thing as the God-man. Because I would ask my Muslim friends, theoretically, if God were to enter into his own creation, if God were triune and the second person, the triune Godhead, were to enter into Humanity. Let me ask you a question. Would he be an atheist? Would he be an atheist? Would he not worship the first person of the Trinity who was yet not incarnate, who had not entered into him? Would he be an atheist or would he be the greatest worshiper of God in perfection ever seen? But you see, for the Quran, the fact that Jesus worshiped Allah is taken as evidence. Well, evidence that he's not Allah. Well, of course, Christians don't believe that the Son is the Father. But you see, by definition, the Quran is misunderstanding the revelation of the New Testament. This will not be the only misinterpretation that we see. Surah 5, verses 15 through 19 say, O people of the book, there hath come to you our apostle, revealing to you much that you used to hide in the book and passing over much that is now unnecessary. I wish we could have the time to, to stop now and unpack all of that because there really is a tremendous question about just what the Quran teaches regarding the state of the text of the Bible. This is saying that people passed over things, not that they took things out, not that they corrupted I think a strong argument could be made that Muhammad did not believe that the scriptures had been done away with because he believed they had been sent down. And I would ask my Muslim friends, if you believe that the Quran was sent down from Allah and that he will not allow it to be corrupted, and yet the Torah and the Injil likewise were sent down from Allah, and yet they were in essence completely destroyed, are you being consistent? If man could destroy those previous revelations, upon what basis do you think that the Quran has been preserved? That would be the question that I would ask. But we continue on. This book that has been passed down 
things that you are passing over much that is now unnecessary. There hath come to you from Allah a new light and a perspicuous book wherewith Allah guideth all who seek his good pleasure to ways of peace and safety and leadeth them out of darkness by his will unto the light, guideth them to a path that is straight. And so the claim that is being made here in the text is that Allah has given guidance. He has given a new book and it is called a clear book, a plain book. Now, please keep in mind that later on, we're going to have to question just how plain the revelation of Allah in the Quran is. We're going to have to be careful at that point because I think a very strong argument can be made that there are numerous places where the Quran is not plain. It is not mubinun. It is not clear to the understanding. But here Allah calls people to recognize the Quran which he has revealed. And then he says, and we'll have to pick up with this in our next study, but then he says, in blasphemy indeed are those that say that Allah is Christ, the son of Mary. Here, this assertion, whatever this means, what does it mean to say Allah is Christ, the son of Mary? Is it the same thing to say Allah is Christ, the son of Mary, as it is to say that Christ is God, but he is distinguished from the father and the son? Is that the same thing? Or are those different statements? The Quran does not seem to recognize the distinction between those statements. And that's what makes this discussion, this dialogue so very important. And so we will continue with the examination of Surah 5 and the assertion that it is blasphemy to make the statement that Allah is Christ, the son of Mary. Is that against Christianity or against a misunderstanding of Christianity? That is the question we will examine as we continue to seek to fairly analyze what the Quran says about the Christian faith. Thank you.